This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 16th of December 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with the author and political journalist Terry Stiastany. And then we'll speak to the writer and researcher for Monocle, Grace Charlton, to find out what you could be buying for your loved ones this Christmas. First, though, here's the news. The Israeli military says it killed three hostages held by Hamas in Gaza after wrongly identifying them as a threat, as the US urged Israel to scale down its military campaign and narrowly target Hamas leaders. A Spanish Navy ship is sailing at full speed towards a Maltese flag commercial vessel that may have been hijacked by pirates off Somalia. If confirmed, it would be the first successful hijacking involving Somali pirates since 2017. Japan and Malaysia signed a security assistance deal today, including a grant of 400 million yen to boost Malaysia's maritime security as Asian nations seek to counter an increasingly assertive China. And former lawyer to Donald Trump and one-time mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, must pay more than $148 million in damages to two former Georgia election workers he defamed through false accusations that they helped rig the 2020 election against Donald Trump. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. Welcome particularly to Terry Stiastany. Good morning. Good morning. So, Terry, you've been looking at the papers for us and uh, the FT is reporting on Zelensky's bitter week of disappointment. Tell us more. One of one of the big uh, themes of the week and just really talking about uh, what Zelensky was hoping for at the beginning of the week and how this really ha- hasn't worked out. He was hoping to get uh, financial aid for Ukraine worth a total of $115 billion um, and didn't really get any of that. Uh, you know, U.S. Congress failing to approve 60 billion, um, despite him going all the way to Washington to go and talk to them about it directly. And then, although from the EU he did manage to get uh, an agreement to start membership talks, they then, you know, Viktor Orban blocked essentially them coming up with any money for Ukraine. So, you know, the, the, this article here is looking at really, you know, where do you go from here? Because you know there seem to be possibly some ways around this, uh, the EU suggesting that some countries might, you know, be able to donate on a bilateral basis. Um, But, you know, this is the biggest suppliers of military and financial aid to Ukraine. And people have said, you know, no, we haven't haven't got any more money. We're not going to hand this over to you because people are sort of blocking it politically. So it's it's a real big problem. I mean, and and the FT points out that Kyiv might have to revert to printing money and that, of course, would endanger its economic and financial stability. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, the other element to this, of course, is we've had, you know, Putin launching his own uh, re-election campaign and sort of doing his big annual press conference that goes on for about four hours where, you know, they... 
FT here is describing him as gloating, saying Ukraine produces almost nothing. The free stuff is going to run out someday. And, you know, really sort of he seems to have been taking absolute delight in in this idea. But um, it's quite interesting, though, you know, EU leaders certainly seem to be saying, look, there, there is a workaround with this. Um, the Dutch saying that there's, you know, maybe we can find a way around this. You know, we'll resolve this somehow. But then again, you know, this is Mark Ritter, who's the Dutch prime minister, who's, you know, going, going to be out probably within within a couple of months after the, after the election. Mm. So it's just, you know, it's the way that things are shifting. And it's, you know, just interesting to see, you know, where, where it goes from here and, and what Ukraine can do about it. And I also think that it's interesting that America has struck a couple of military deals with both Finland and uh, Sweden, uh, even though they're, well, Finland at least is, is now a, members, a member of NATO. Uh, but this is separate to that. So they're really bolstering their forces in that part of the world. It's almost as if they're saying, OK, well, this is probably the new front line. Yes. So, you know, yeah, that is interesting, you know, particularly looking at, you know, the way Putin has been talking, you know, and it's just, you know, it's going to be looking ahead to 2024. You know, these are going to be some of the big questions of the year, I suppose. You know, we're looking ahead at a US election. You know, how long is the Ukraine situation going to continue? Is Ukraine going to be able to to keep fighting the way it would like to? You know, these are all the kinds of things that, you know, that we're going to end up being talking about for probably for at least the next year. Yeah. Well, here in Britain, most people are talking about how disappointed they are in the current government. Uh, and many people of the left are even more disappointed now because uh, Rishi Sunak is going off to Georgia Maloney's weird festival in Italy, aligning himself even further, it would appear, with the right. Yes, this is, uh, this is a really strange um, choice uh, on Rishi Sunak's part. I don't quite understand why why he is doing this. This is called the Atreju, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, um, summit. So he's going to be meeting... Uh, some other leaders, Elon Musk is going to be there as well, apparently. Um, you know, it's going to be a, a bilateral, OK, they've got a lot to talk about, you know, Sunak and Maloney in terms of immigration. Um, you know, The Guardian is reporting on this here and they have, you know, seemed to seem to get on particularly well talking about their friendship. Um, and it's going to be talking about, so I don't know what they're going to be talking about, but one of the things that this article picks up very strangely is that they are both really into kind of fantasy literature. So Maloney is kind of obsessed with Tolkien Keen, uh, and she has, you know, really been into that. And she, uh, this this festival is named after a character in the dark fantasy epic, the Never Ending Story. And Sunak is a big Star Wars fan, so apparently this is this is one of the things that they have in common. On, uh, yeah, they've found straight found common ground in this as well as in as well as in talking about uh, immigration. So yeah, this is a this is a very it's kind of a, a very strange weekend. I think that, that Rishi Sunak is is going to be having uh, very odd and and one just wonders what what the message he's sending to the British public is through this too. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, again, Rishi Sunak um, has not had uh, the best of weeks. Um, you know, he's had difficulties getting uh, getting laws through about, particularly about sending uh, migrants to Rwanda. Um, you know, people are sort of really saying, you know, he had a year where he started off being the sort of dull, competent you know, person who was going to sort things out and get things done. And he is finding that harder and harder as the year has gone on. And he is, you know, finding more and more uh, rebels on his, on his own side. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why, you know, why he would go and, go and do this. He's going to be meeting the Prime Minister of Albania as well. I mean, that is, you know, again, is related to uh, the immigration issue, which is, you know, which is obviously, you know, something 
that you know is a big priority for for Rishi Sunak. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not quite sure of what you know what message he thinks this this would be sending. Yeah, the director of uh, campaigns at the civil rights group Hope Not Hate is quoted here saying the fact that he and Maloney, a far right politician, are taking notes from each other about immigration policy is very telling about where Sunak's party is headed. And of course, immigration, as you say, front and center this week. Yes. Um, so yes, there's another, you know, again, this seems to be, I think it's that kind of slight end of term feeling that you get, you know, Parliament is going to break uh, for Christmas in a couple of days. And, you know, the Times is talking uh, about really about sort of, yeah, where Rishi Sunak stands at the end of this year. And of course, you know, one of the other things that's going to be the big theme of the coming year is when are we going to have a general election in the UK? It could be, you know, could be any time, could be, you know, right at uh, the last minute, be the beginning of 20. 2025. Um, but this article, again, while also talking about um, Maloney's festival, is really largely looking at the speculation in Westminster at the moment about when um, an election campaign could be. And uh, the Times is describing this here, saying, after a few days off over Christmas, Rishi Sunak will unofficially trigger the start of what is expected to be one of the longest, most expensive and most bruising election contests in history. Um, So they're not suggesting that he's going to have an early election, which uh, there's been quite a lot of speculation about. Would he have one in May? Could he even have one even earlier than that? Um, They're saying that he... They think here that the campaign is election most likely to to be in October, um, but also trying to say, you know, election campaigning effectively starts now. And again, some interesting little sort of glimpses of, of what Rishi Sunak is like. So apart from being into Star Wars, they're saying he's a real workaholic who's working till 10.30 at night, giving up, going exercising on his Peloton bike to do even more work. But, you know, the question is, I think with Rishi Sunak is, you know, kind of can he see the wood for the trees at the moment? You know, he, is he he's someone who obviously focuses in a lot on detail, but sometimes doesn't seem to have that kind of political instinct rather. You know, he's he's so focusing on, you know, trying trying to work really, really hard um, that he sometimes doesn't step back and look at the bigger picture, I mm. think. And of course, migration and will be very much at the heart of this campaign too. There's a wonderful quote from a cabinet minister. He said, we're like a dog returning to its sick. <laughs> yes, uh, talking it's... about the Rwanda policy. It's like we're incapable of doing or talking about anything else. Well, yes. And again, that is going to come back again with a vengeance in January. You know, Rishi Sunak managed to get the second reading of his uh, immigration bill through. There were quite a lot of rebels who, you know, abstained. They didn't vote either for it or against it. But, you know, they're going to want to change that bill when it comes back to Parliament in the new year. And so that's probably going to be the point at which we see all of these different groupings uh, in the Conservative Party arguing with each other about what they should do about immigration, what they should, you know, should they be having a bill that uh, abides by international rules? Should they be trying to opt out of the European Convention on Human Rights? You know, these are quite fundamental differences and it's going to you know, really um, come to the fore again once, mm. once that all comes back. Uh, the Times has a, a good graphic here showing uh, the polls and how people plan to vote. I mean, there is no doubt that Labour will come out on top, I think. Well, I think, you know, the, the polls have been so consistent for the last, you know, certainly the last year. I mean, Labour 
has regularly been 20 points ahead of the Conservatives and and very little um, that the government has done uh, has shifted that, you know, and, you know, just things don't necessarily play well. You know, we've had another MP this week um, potentially have to stand down because, you know, he was uh, sort of done in a sting operation by a a company that uh, was a fake gambling company and see he was kind of offering, you know, the, the committee that looked into this said he was effectively offering himself for sale and saying that other MPs were the same. And just those kind of regular things where you get, you know, local by-elections like that with issues like that coming up, you know, just you get the sense that this is kind of a government that is running out of time. And it's, it's you know, it's a lot of people trying to push the government further to the right saying, well, you know, if you don't like what we're offering you now, would you like double helpings of, of what we're going to offer you? And you just think that's not really a thing that's going to going to turn these polls around. Mm, mm. Uh, and of course, another big fear about elections, and indeed we've been warned about this, is uh, interference by states such as Russia or China, and particularly in cyber form, but also just general disinformation. Uh, and there's a great piece by uh, Elliot Higgins, who of course is the man behind Bellingcat uh, in the FT today. Yes, I think this is this is really interesting. And again, you know, we're going to end up talking about this a lot, particularly if you've got a UK election and a US election. And these are times when when things are uncertain, that disinformation really seems to accelerate. And, you know, particularly uh, with, with social media, you can just do this on a scale now that we've not seen before. I mean, you're seeing it a lot in the Middle East as well, particularly, you know, constantly people sort of putting out images and stuff which turn out to be fake or turn out to be images of a, a different conflict somewhere else at another time. Um, but this is quite, it's, it's actually quite an optimistic essay here um, by uh, Elliot Higgins. So he's not just saying despair about this. And this is somebody, you know, who's a investigative um, journalist, but he's actually saying that in the same way that disinformation kind of proliferates on the internet, you can actually turn that to our advantage and you can actually use an you know kind of the collective mind to try and combat disinformation and saying because there is now so much open source information say about conflicts or whatever that actually people can get together and say well look that's that's not the truth but we have, we can show you exactly what is going on and you can try and spread real information in the same you know in a similar way to the way that people are, are spreading disinformation and he's talking obviously here about you know the importance of trust and the importance of what people believe and what people you know understand to be true and you know saying just how important that is particularly uh, in a democracy and particularly you know when elections are underway. Absolutely and he's talking about um, sort of well he talks specifically about Twitter or X as it's called he said that the first thing we need to do is confront the unsettling transformations happening within platforms that have become primary news sources for many so he's talking about how how X has sort of you I mean, you used to get a blue tick if you were a sort of genuine person. Now mm. you pay for it, for instance. Uh, and uh, I think it's a, it's a question also of choosing your news sources. If you, if you relied completely on Twitter, you would have a very skewed view of the world. Yes, and I think you'd have a very skewed view of what, you know, what people are really talking about. And just, I think, you know, one of the, the dangers of it as well is it's the anger and it's the constant, you know, you sort of pick up your phone and go, oh God, what, what are people upset about or angry about today? And that kind of just puts you in this kind 
kind of hyper, almost sort of hyper vigilant state of like, you know, I've got to get upset about the next thing. And actually, you know, maybe it's better to sort of take a bit of time and and think about things. And, you know, again, take a take a slight step back. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of the worst about this. I am constantly always sort of scrolling through. But, you know, yeah. actually try and try and look for better better sources of information. Yeah. Um, he's saying that regulation might not be the way, though. That, and he has got other uh, solutions. Um, yes. No, so he is talking about, uh, yeah, you don't, that the danger of having particular, particularly state regulation, because obviously, um, you know, he's drawing this distinction here between democratic nations that might be doing this for, for good reasons, but saying, you know, the same tools could be weaponized by authoritarian regimes who are trying trying to suppress dissent so that, you know, all of these countries, he's saying, you know, Russia, China, Iran and Venezuela could even use Western states' attempts at countering disinformation as a pretext to to justify their own censorship and their own control. So, you know, he's saying that there is a danger of allowing, having it be states that do this and states that decide, you know, what what's good information and what isn't. Mm. He says addressing the root of disinformation requires a grassroots approach and he says education stands at the forefront of the strategy. So what he wants is he wants uh, uh, open source investigation and critical thinking to be integrated into the curriculum. He says if the youth have the skills to navigate the digital realm, to question, analyse and verify before accepting or sharing information, then that would be a, a very good way forward. Yeah, and I think that is definitely true. But I think I think children are, or young people are certainly, I think they are learning to do this already. I think if you've grown up with social media, you, have, you know, the kids I see, they're a lot more sceptical about it and they're you know all sort of saying oh god you're not gonna you know you don't follow that person do you or this is ridiculous so so i think they've got quite a a healthy wariness about what people are telling them and you know and who is providing that information and they're quite good at being, being critical of of the sources and of of, of what they're seeing mm, uh, and i mean he does end with a quite a dire warning um, uh, and he says you know it's not just a challenge of the present but a looming crisis for the future the cost of inaction is one we cannot afford to pay so that's uh, quite scary from Eric Higgins <laughs> who does know what he's talking about uh, we're looking at wine now because if it's all going so wrong we might as well just drink ourselves to death um, this is uh, French people apparently though are not doing that they're drinking less wine with the young favouring beer and spirits so wine makers, this piece says, are taking cues from Madison Avenue and it's all about brand partnership. Yeah, I think, um, yes, this is uh, an interesting article and I think a lot of you know French people would be sort of horrified at some of some of the things that are going on, talking about um, US style marketing um, and trying to create brands you know because you know traditionally it's all about you know your your territory it's all about your local area you know you don't have these sort of big wine labels that are um you know, just a sort of, um, you know, something that you can easily pick off the shelf. But this is, you know, we've been talking about fantasy television shows and there's a winemaker here, Thibaut Bardet, um, who makes wine near Saint-Emilion, is launching a Game of Thrones-themed <laughs> line of wines, selling 80,000. Now he's got two more t- sort of TV tie-in ones, one, a Peaky Blinders wine and a Lord of the Rings one. I'm not sure, you know, what, is, what does a Peaky Blinders wine taste like? I don't know. I, don't, I can kind of imagine a Game of Thrones or sort of Lord of the Rings. I mean, 
Game of Thrones would be a bit sort of bloodthirsty. And Lord of the Rings, you can imagine drinking it from a nice a sort of goblet, you know, exactly. some sort of elvish um, thing. But yes, they're saying this, this is a very Anglo-Saxon uh, idea. One of these wines is called uh, the Imp's Delight. It looks uh, looks like, but yeah, I, I, maybe it will maybe it will catch on. But I, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's outside of France that that this would would catch on particularly. Absolutely, quite extraordinary. Now let's go back to um, sort of well, it's not really fantasy, but it, it is television in a way. Um, this is an extraordinary thing that you found uh, in the Guardian uh, about what's happening in Finland: the rise of reindeer noir. <laughs> yes, I've got. I have to say, I haven't come across any of this before. Um, this is a report from Rovaniemi, um, the home of Santa in Lapland, uh, the capital of Finnish Lapland. And apparently, yeah, they've got a, a whole new um, genre of Nordic noir, which they are calling uh, reindeer noir. And they are trying to, I think, get more people to come and make films in Lapland. But these, these um, series sound great. Apparently, there's one called Arctic Circle, uh, which is already into its, its third season. It says it features the Russian mafia, police officers on snow scooters and unforgiving landscapes. A crime drama makes full use of its northerly location close to the border with Russia. Uh, There's another series called Reindeer Mafia uh, and another one, 66 North Precinct, which is based on a sort of true crime stories in Lapland. Um, And they're saying, you know, they're obviously keen to get more people to come and and film there, but the the, uh, film, uh, I think it's one of the producers saying that infrastructure is still quite small, so it's quite expensive to come and, and shoot. So people have to bring things in um, but you know it, they, it does apparently look absolutely beautiful and looking at a few sort of shots of it I can I can see why so mm-hmm. and it's also there are also books um, crime novels and uh, and theatre and theatre productions as well so Reindeer Noir it's it's a thing it's yeah. a thing and I just I didn't know this that um, the, the the so this is in Roivanemi is that how you pronounce I, it I think it's so, Roivanemi yeah, yeah where our Santa Claus comes from uh, it was rebuilt after it was burnt to the ground by retreating German uh, officers in the Second World War and apparently there's a reindeer head embedded in its street plan. Yeah, like, I think this must make it sort of a, a great location because you know, it's all rebuilt by Alva Arto, all these sort of modern, modernist um, buildings and just, you know, so that it's obviously got a particular look of it um, as well. Uh, so, yeah, so this is the place, you know, the, obviously they've got good PR people who are telling people to come and film and set, set dramas there but I think, you know, I think they're onto something. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, Terry, Christmas, round the corner. What are your plans? Uh, I'm going to be uh, in London for Christmas this year. It's uh, just a small Christmas with the family, but I'm uh, just looking. I really like a, a London Christmas. I like how the city goes really quiet uh, and you just kind of, you know, go to the butchers and you go and get all your food. And, um, yeah, it's just, I, I like it. I like staying home and, I, you know, it should, it should be nice. Yeah, I, I love it too. I, I have kind of warned my family that I don't want to do the Christmas tree because it always ends up sort of me having to take it down alone rather sad and you know all the helpers who were happy to drape tinsel earlier are nowhere to be seen at that point. <laughs> so they've agreed. And then last night I got uh, enthused by the idea of doing homemade crackers. So now I've ordered all the stuff I need to make crackers. I don't know why I did that. It's just it's, <laughs> it's an be, extra job, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so now I'm scouring London for tiny, beautiful little things to put in crackers. So if you've got any ideas, do let me know. Because are you um, writing your own jokes? Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to f- find find some. Um, I hope um, there's um you were, you were talking about um, uh, Tolkien uh, earlier. 
and um what's the joke and he sort of he's you know tossing and turning at night and talking about Fredo and his wife works and says you were talking 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 in your sleep <laughs> so I'm sure something like that could could possibly find its way there are many many terrible dad jokes out there that I could find for, for crackers anyway one of the other things of course is well gift giving so it's not just little things that you might want to look for but Really beautiful luxury items. And, uh, well, our next piece will tell us all about that. Now, Christmas Day is fast approaching with less than two weeks left to finish your Christmas shopping. And if you're not organised yet, have no fear. Grace Charlton, writer and researcher at Monocle, is coming to your rescue with a festive gift-giving guide. Uh, Grace, what do you have for us? Well, it was quite fun to put this together because I could be a little bit aspirational and um, think about what people might actually want, not what they need. So we can start off with a bottle of champagne, always necessary. Um, I don't think you can go wrong. We've got a Laurent Perrier Grand Siècle, which is a really special cuvee. I tried to get more hobby-appropriate gifts in there. So there's a chess set from the Conran shop, which is quite gorgeous. We've got gardening tools from So Vital. And, you know, the usual wellnessy little bits and bobs. We have this lovely Swedish toothpaste from Salahattan, which uses a lot of, like, aromatic ingredients like cardamom. And, yeah bathrobes, jumpers, everything. So I'm a little bit concerned because I see you've also got um, a knife set. Uh, And whilst all chefs will appreciate really top quality knives, there is this superstition that if you give knives to people, you are going to sever the relationship. What do we do about that? You're right. I should have added a little caveat saying that you have to give a penny or a little bit of money when you gift a knife. Is that true? I I believe so. I mean, I know I always do. (laughs) How pathetic am I? But, you know, you can't be too careful with these things. Yeah, no, it's true. And you don't want to offend anyone. I mean, we do have some workout stuff in there. I don't want to tell people that they need to get into shape, but it, it would be nice to have, like, you know, fancy dumbbells. So I did include those. But yes, maybe maybe I should add a disclaimer saying like this is all intended to be gifted with love what about cashmere because i see that there is a quite quite a a hefty cashmere offering here well i mean it is winter time you want to wrap up and stay warm we have this really lovely throw from beg and co which is or beg x co um, which is a scottish company we do have a merino wool zip up a low ave scarf i mean this is the time to really swaddle oneself mm. in in cashmere and mm. and handbags bottega veneta in particular that's for the very special lady in your life for sure an andiamo bag that was actually recommended by our very own fashion editor natalie theodosi i think she's trying to manifest one for christmas for herself <laughs> <laughs> i also believe in gift giving as a love language it's my love language i like the idea that someone was out in the world and saw something and thought of me um so hopefully 
people can look at this gift guide and also think of their loved ones. No, absolutely. I've got, I have a friend who does that throughout the year and she'll go around shops and see something and think, oh, that reminds me of so-and-so and she'll write it down in her little notebook and next time there's an occasion to give them a present, she's got that because she sort of remembers it all. And we just had the secret Santa here. Did <laughs> uh, It was oh, so nice. sweet in, amongst the radio team. Yeah. Um, and of course, you're not meant to know who's drawn your name, but I, I do know who gave me this wonderful gift and it's a, a little dog calendar with beautiful oh. illustrations and really kind of witty uh, notes throughout the calendar. Everybody got really lovely gifts for five quid. And although I can't promise you'd find that in our gift guide, <laughs> there are also some, some surprisingly affordable things in this guide. Yeah, like a nice set of, of, of a whiskey decanter by Karl Olbock, who was a Swedish designer, I believe. Or like pans, or like a candle. I just don't think you can go wrong with a candle. A candle is always really useful. And speaking of fragrances, what do we have on that line? We also have a new perfume by Celine. Um, the creative director, Idis Liman, he's got this vision for Celine, which is an olfactory diary. And this is called the Celeste perfume. And it's very lovely. And it sort of smells like buttery cookies. Tell me about the olfactory diary. That sounds fascinating. No, it's really fun because I think that what he's done is um, memories from his childhood, like a boat ride down the Seine, he's tried to capture into a bottle of perfume. Savile Row is one of his perfumes and it's about learning how to cut suits in London. But yeah, so this is the newest edition and I think it's about his childhood ritual of bath time. So, Grace, how did you come to put this gift guide together? What was your your sort of driving sentiment behind it? Well, I don't know about you, but in late November slash early December, I just get bombarded with all these gift guides online or through magazines. or And it was just getting to the point where they were so not useful because they seemed really whimsical. I don't know, like I didn't think there were actually things that the people in my life would want. So when I got asked to do this gift guide, I really took it as an opportunity for what would the people in my life actually want. And I'm also very lucky to work with people who have incredible taste. So I asked Nick Manise, the design editor, Natalie I mentioned earlier, everyone sort of put in their little two cents and shared their wish lists essentially with me. So this is a real gift guide put together with genuine desire <laughs> for these items it's not just you know like what can we be a little bit different we actually kind of did want to strip it back to basics which might be toothpaste and a chess set but I, I actually thought it was really fun to come up with and I hope I get to do it next year. Uh, what are your final thoughts then what's your, what, what would be your number one tip to a, a gift giver? Oh. I do think the best gifts are the ones that people would never buy for themselves because they seem a little bit too indulgent. Like, I wouldn't necessarily invest for myself in a beautiful chess set, but if I received one, I would appreciate it so much every day for the rest of the year and beyond. So, yeah. Grace, thank you very much. Just uh, before we, we end this item, I must say that I would not be disappointed with the Andiamo bag. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Grace Charlton, thanks very much indeed. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan, and my guests were Terry Stiastini and Monocle's Grace Charlton. And Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>